Welcome to this episode of Mission Business, a podcast about good business for those in the business of good. Presented by your part-time controller, LLC, also known as YPTC. My name is Jennifer Oliva, the host of Mission Business and managing partner at YPTC. In this episode, I spoke with Paul Dougherty, Chief Executive Officer of Exponent Philanthropy. We cover Exponent Philanthropy's mission, how Paul became interested and involved in philanthropy, and the power of combining philanthropy with public dollars, individual donor dollars, and local business. And now, my conversation with Paul Dougherty. Paul, thanks for joining the Mission Business Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks, Jennifer. You refer to yourself as a proud Appalachian. Tell me about your early life in West Virginia and your path into the nonprofit sector. Sure, sure. Growing up in a wonderful place of uh, West Union, West Virginia, a small town in Doddridge County, West Virginia, was very active in our family business and community. And so a lot of communities in West Virginia have different levels of success and challenges like any community does. So got involved at a very young age, 10 or 12, and the different nonprofit issues. In addition to that, my father had a small county practice. And so we all got drafted to help out of the practice. It was actually in the house. It was his small business. And so not only did we do the volunteering and critical work in the community, but also a lot of times when nonprofits ran into financial operation troubles or accountability troubles or just improving their accounting, they approached him. So I got a chance to see from the accounting side, but also the good work. And so my career kind of evolved from active in the business side, but also in the community, to going off to college to a wonderful experience at West Virginia Wesleyan for a program called the Bonner Scholars, which was a philanthropy initiative that allowed colleges to focus on community impact, to reduce their college debt, but also do so many service hours. So it just evolved and I fell into philanthropy right as I came out of college working in community foundations and did not know it was a professional role. But the exciting part was of seeing the overall impact that philanthropy has pulling every part of the communities together and focusing on the future. And so it just evolved from working at a foundation to running a foundation a few years later to working in uh, development, but then going back to the grant making side, running a great group called Philanthropy West Virginia, and then joining Exponent just recently. So I, when you look at the space of philanthropy and nonprofits and community and economic development, I kind of served on every side of the table, being a beneficiary of philanthropy, working with nonprofits and founding them and being on their boards, being a personal donor, and then also being a staff person and a committee or board member of funders. So the lived experience balanced with a commitment to really strong and thriving communities. You mentioned that your father was an accountant. So uh, why didn't you go into the accounting profession? He threatened to kill me if I ever became an accountant. He, uh, really? I, th I think it was his backup career. I think he wanted to be a forester, but my understanding, he had a lot of allergies. And so his doctor said, you can't go out and be a forester if you get stung by bees. But um, it was a good basis to understand what are the challenges and the accountabilities. But at the mm -hmm. same point, I just, the spreadsheets and the numbers were just not what gave me my passion and drive. It was good to have that background. Plus, I believe throughout my career and throughout life that you always lean into what your strengths are. And my strengths are more in the people development, relationship, partnership, team leading, and, and revenue development. 
So I always need, need a really good finance team. So that's one thing that yeah. we're, we're pleased to work with YPTC at Exponent <laughs> Philanthropy. Uh, and then additionally is just having that good basis. So, But I think that's interesting about the accounting background that you were brought up in and the fact that now that you're an executive, finance is so important to what you have to do in all of the jobs that you have. Yeah, and I also agree, having been a funder and or working with funders, building capacity of nonprofits, is I see it also as a responsibility to, when you find really good resources, whether when I was at my previous role at Philanthropy West Virginia, we found a vendor to do our back office on finance that we worked with because uh, we were a smaller, you know, smaller organization as well. But really trying to help nonprofits to let them lead in with or mission-driven organization or philanthropy say like, what you're best at doing is X. Let's figure out how the back office is structured in a way that is cost effective where you're not, if you're not able to bring it in-house, but you're able to bring it, you know, to have a contractor or a partner that really aligns with it, but also figuring out the revenue streams. Because I think the one thing is a lot of nonprofits are great are doing their work. But when it comes to the business model, the revenue generation, and the financial operations, it's not because they don't they don't want to do it. It's just they sometimes have to turn a penny into a dollar. So they're always mm -hmm. looking at those resources. So I think as a with my funder hat on and being involved in philanthropy, working among funders to find out a way to build the capacity of nonprofits around their financial management and operations is something I find not only important, but energizing when we can find that fit. So that an organization goes from good to great in their endeavors of long-term success. So you mentioned about your early life and your involvement in philanthropy from a young age. When did you really realize the power and the necessity of philanthropy? Great question. One of the things was because of where I grew up, there had been a historical amount of wealth made, but it never really stayed in the community with a lot of other communities when they have that, when the wealth's made there, the foundations are created, whether it's a community foundation, private or family. And so I saw it at a very young age that when the community was hitting, we had a kind of the loss of the glass industry. So G-L-A-S-S -S, because of the evolution of international markets. And then also textile, we had some different sewing factories in the region that when those moved out of the area and relocated to other parts of the country, other parts of the world, that there was not an element of local assets, by philanthropy assets or business assets or tax base all declined because of the loss, that how much we needed something to transition in the economy. And so when we did find a couple funders out there to work with us, that we really had to leverage and leverage and leverage to do great work. And so seeing the power of how when you marry philanthropy with public dollars, with individual donor dollars, with local business support, you can turn in something into from a scarcity mindset to an abundance. So really helping a community see its potential. So we saw that in my hometown where we did some critical, I think at 17 and 18 years of age and in my earlier college years, we were working on converting some abandoned properties from a water plant into a recreational space that now has just gone through another evolution of new philanthropic assets that became a recreation space, a farmer's market destination, a place that really allowed for health and wellness. And when I saw how that came together by, you know, $1,500 there, $15,000 there, public funds from the state legislature, it's like, wow, we can, we can really turn, you know, the old stone soup fable. <laughs> if we all put something into the pot, we can actually produce a better product. 
but I didn't know that was a professional role. I thought that's just what we all did as volunteers. Um, and so the second stage of the power was being a Bonner scholar at West Virginia Westland. Each year, the Bonner Foundation would bring in, I think it was 20 scholars, individuals who came from different financial backgrounds and need that they could then graduate with a lesser amount of debt, get a multitude of scholarships, and then focus on leadership, service, philanthropy. So seeing how that investment from the Bonner Foundation allowed all of us to achieve our college educations, be able to be involved in the community, the leverage potential was amazing. And that's where the power came from, where philanthropy can listen to the community, invest in people, and then thirdly, be able to progress not just from a need, but to a transformation. So you turn that volunteerism, pre-college and during college, into your career. You decided to go into philanthropy during college? I kind of I really didn't know it was a profession. I was actually planning to be in communications, politics or policy, or maybe even in business. It was coming out of undergrad. I was approached about a new community foundation being set up in my home counties. I was starting grad school and someone said, you know, they need a part-time person. You know, this is the skill sets. And I thought, well, I've never heard of this as a career field, but I will try it out as a part-time role. I started with the Ritchie County Community Foundation, the first affiliate in West Virginia through the Parkersburg Area Community Foundation, was mentored by the wonderful Judy Showstead and many of the board, the local community. And then that allowed for me to see like, what is the potential of what we could do? Learning about community foundations worldwide. I was sitting at international tables talking about economic development and community development and how philanthropy leverages it. And then being in a place such as with such rich history and such passion that people have, and then the commitment is that then that was the ability to say that we can connect individuals who want to see the community thrive beyond their time and then do it in a way that it's community-connected decisions. And that's where the energy, the passion, as well as the vision for this as a career really started to materialize and being able to say that my commitment to my home region can be furthered beyond my, beyond my career. And it's about the people. What were some of your early lessons? Early lessons were patience with process. Uh, the Community Foundation was a new concept, only a few years old in Ritchie County at the time. And so I'm a person that likes to see product and completion of a project. And so being able to know that you don't always solve the issues overnight, so being patient but then secondly, the persistence of having that long-term and building in successes throughout the process. If you're always focused on the end goal that can take a year, five years, 10 years, 25 years, you'll burn out. But being able to be put in the celebrations, I think fourth is working with people. You know, truly be in community with, uh, whether it's a business owner, whether it's a donor, whether it's a nonprofit leader, whether it's a beneficiary, is humility is so key but being able to connect with people where they are, understand the lived experience, and centering the lived experience in the work. Whether you're running a small business and understanding your client's needs, whether you're running a nonprofit, whether you're a funder, is that we can get into our assumptions and our assumptions are misleading. So being able to be out in the community and connecting with one another and then constantly having that feedback loop is so critical. And to this day in philanthropy, we have those who are well-intended, but sometimes they're disconnected. Mm -hmm. And I think going forth is making sure that folks are actually listening to lived experience, especially in rural communities, urban communities, 
and seeing how people are grappling with the issues that you actually are problem solving and not just dumping more problems on the situation. So from that role as regional program officer, what took you from there to CEO of Philanthropy West Virginia? So I had actually interned during my grad school with the formerly named West Virginia Grant Makers. We turned it into Philanthropy West Virginia, same organization. So I'd been familiar with it. And it was a wonderful opportunity. I was approached uh, by their board of directors and several members about how we can build out a, a statewide network of philanthropy. Where in West Virginia, the uniqueness of the industry's term is philanthropy serving organizations. But a philanthropy West Virginia, sometimes a philanthropy serving organization has been about more like the, the policy and the protection of the philanthropy sector, where in West Virginia, because of the history of underinvestment from philanthropy, part of our role was to actually strengthen philanthropy's impact. And so I was approached, I'd actually been a candidate when they did the search previously, that person left and they came back and said, can you help us get this on the right path? So I came into the role because of the the familiarity of the organization, but also knowing the potential. And so it's just a great fit. How about some uh, policies that you helped promote during your time at Philanthropy West Virginia? We were critical about looking at how our impact was not just for philanthropy, but actually the communities that we serve. And part of that was working in partnership with nonprofits. So we could not do the work in a vacuum. From a policy perspective, we had several wins over time, and my colleagues who are there now are doing incredible work into the future. One was a historical piece was that because of West Virginia's history of not having as much philanthropic investment, we had started work prior to my arrival there of a program called the West Virginia Neighborhood Investment Program. It's a charitable giving incentive. What it was was to encourage more businesses and more individuals to donate to 501c3s. Whether it's a community foundation, whether it's your local food pantry, whether it's the outreach initiative at a local church. The program was established in 1995, implemented in 1996, but it was renewed. It's a renewable legislative bill. It was a charitable giving incentive so that if you gave $1,000 to a nonprofit that got some, some of the neighborhood investment program tax credit, you would get back as you, with your accounting expertise. It would be mean in the end that $1,000, if you had the standard deduction at the time, plus you get $500 in tax credit back, your $1,000 gift costs you $200 and it goes to a worthy cause. You can direct your resources and give more. So we worked on it about three or four times during my 12-year tenure to renew the program and try to expand the program. And so that was one of the things was just defending that, especially during budget crisis in the state when we came out of the 2009 to 2011 recession. A lot of stuff was on the line to be cut out by the state. We're able to protect it. And then the work has been to expand it. So that's one. Two was we had created a wonderful uh, partnership with the nonprofit association that we formed, which was the West Virginia Impact Commission. So it was a way for us to bring nonprofits philanthropy together with both the legislative and executive branches in the state and talk about what are the needs of nonprofits in our communities. So we had identified through the nonprofit associations work, a number of state agencies who were delaying reimbursements to nonprofits doing critical services, causing nonprofits to close, causing nonprofits to take out lines of credit just to make their budgets float while they wait for state reimbursement. It was a mess. And so what we did in that regard was more of an agency level work as we worked through the governor's office and the state auditor's office for them to streamline processes. And so the nonprofit led a lot of this, but we supported that 
and really used our power role in philanthropy to say to state government, like, you're a funder, we're a funder. You're causing distress for so many of our grantees who can't do their work well. The most recent one is, and it's ongoing in Congress, is on the economic development, community development front. So many communities, whether they're urban, suburban, or rural, are looking at education attainment levels, you know, with post-secondary degree, whether it's an associate's apprenticeship, a four-year on and up, and two, workforce, you know, talent retention and attraction. We're seeing it with the 2020 census results. So there's a national coalition working to pass what's called the Come Home Award legislation that's been sponsored by Senator Peters from Michigan, Senator's Capitol from West Virginia. And what this is, is to make some changes to the IRS that allow for foundations to pool their resources to make post-graduation scholarships available, which means is that if you want to attract talent or retain talent in your community, like the St. Clair Community Foundation up in Michigan, they can provide a competitive scholarship for individuals who have completed an accredited certificate, associate's degree, whichever on up, because it allows for them to have a competitive edge and an individual can apply for it and then move back or stay in that community. And what happens is it doesn't get paid to the individual. It allows for the collection of the community foundation to gather the resources and give a three to five year loan payment off because a lot of communities can't afford the higher level salaries, the college debt, even if there's national initiatives to reduce college debt, college debt is still substantial. And so this is a workforce economic development legislation that's wow. currently in the Senate and the House and the Council of Michigan Foundations, Philanthropy West Virginia, and a coalition with several others has been working on that. And so that's pending, but such a critical issue to help communities have another tool in the toolbox of economic development. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening to Mission Business Podcast. My name is Carol Melvin, and I'm a senior manager and leader in YPTC's Washington, D.C. office. YPTC is currently hiring nationwide. We offer a flexible work environment, 35-hour standard work week, perks and incentives, full benefits, as well as full and part-time positions to fit your needs. The best part? You can use your accounting skills for good and directly impact the success of amazing nonprofit organizations. At YPTC, we know that a career is not one size fits all. We are dedicated to a workplace guided by trust, support, education, integrity, equity, community, and strong relationships. YPTC is consistently recognized for its strong and employee-focused culture. Most recently, we appeared on Inc. Magazine's Best Places to Work list and ranked second in Accounting Today's Best Accounting Firms to Work For. So what's next? Are you ready to love your job? Apply today on YPTC.com or contact careers at YPTC.com. We can't wait to meet you. You are now the CEO of Exponent Philanthropy. What was your road there? Well, I had known of Exponent for years because they were a recognized leader because we had a lot of lean funders in West Virginia. We define lean funders based upon foundations, corporations, family giving that really focus on putting the money to the community. So I was actually contacted by a couple colleagues and said, did you know Exponent searching? They, they, they probably value hearing from what philanthropy West Virginia does. And I actually was going out from approach of like, we did some consulting at Philanthropy West Virginia, but it evolved into, we're interested in hearing more about what you're doing and, you know, would you consider? Then when I saw the vision of transform communities through informed giving, like really using the measure of our impact at Exponent 
around how are the communities doing that funders are. And then knowing the nation's largest network of funders is that, you know, it's 1600 members. We're in every state. And in, in philanthropic impact is local. It is on the ground where you really see the transformation and knowing that it is a network that is focused on a vision of benefiting communities and transforming them for the good. But then secondly, knowing the network is focused on, you know, reaching every community in the country. It was an exciting opportunity, but also joining a wonderful staff team, very committed to the mission and then addition to the board. And then the membership is outstanding to work with. How many members? Uh, 1,600. And that covers uh, all 50 states, as well as I think we have like 2% of our membership come from at least three other continents across the world. And how do you amplify their voice? Well, we amplify their voice in several ways. Some of them are through our lifting of best practices and through the trainings and resources. We have a wonderful podcast called Catalytic Philanthropy that my colleague Andy Carroll does. A lot of times that the national attention and or state attention or interest around philanthropy are typically the big funders and they do incredible work. So don't let me discredit them. But really some of the innovation and practices is how lean funders in community, whether they're a, a funder that focuses on a state, a county, a region, or one community or the nation, they're the ones that kind of initiate a lot of these processes. And so what's been done in the past and going forward is really lifting up to tell that lean funders, no matter what their assets are, are a critical partner to national philanthropy to have impact locally, but also how they can punch above their weight class a lot of times and doing incredible things. So we amplify it through sharing the best practice, the promising practices, I should call it. Secondly, is through our different storytelling elements. And then third is telling it more broadly across the sector into the general public that lean funders are really were catalytic change where transformation occurs because of their commitment and their focus on putting resources into place. And a lean funder could be any size of foundation. Yes, right. absolutely. We have a number of members who are billions in dollars in assets down to members that are, you know, just a, a family trust that meets once a year and gives out, you know, 10 grand or 20 grand. And what are the requirements of being a member? So exponent philanthropy membership is that you're giving beyond at least one institution. So for example, great institutions like, you know, Harvard University or you know, American University or Ball State University, they have an arm that's either philanthropic or technically a foundation. Those are, you know, operating foundations or fundraising foundations. We focus on individuals, families, donor advised funds, giving circles, uh, organized private family, corporate or community foundations that give beyond one institution um, and really to the broader community that could be issue based, that could be General-based, we have members doing all types of things across all spectrums. And being able to have a peer group that you're able to talk to no matter what stage you are. Because we have a lot of innovative philanthropists who are not using traditional organized philanthropy. And so we are that, that resource to them as well. What are you thinking about changing or doing differently to shape Exponent for the future? Philanthropy-serving organizations like Exponent are such a unique animal in the 501c3 space because our business model is a variety of different revenue streams and the models have taken such a dynamic recalibration some took hits during the past two or three years 
So one of the key things is that is working through our revenue and business modeling to identify what are the opportunities going forward. You know, we have member support through membership investments. Some might call that dues. We have elements of support through major grants, some unrestricted, some programmatic. We have program revenue. So we're doing an analysis right now with a reset finance committee to identify not just a budget for 2023, but we're looking at our budgeting for the next three years and then figuring out like what are the opportunities for us to make sure that folks can access membership and that we're not outpriced, but then innovative revenue streams that are out there that allow for us to have the critical mission that we serve. Our team's doing incredible work. It's a very hardworking, dedicated staff team and board. As like a lot of nonprofits and or philanthropy, we took a hit the past couple of years. So we're really going through and looking at each element there and then defining, you know, what it looks like, diagnosing what are the opportunities or challenges, designing the new new elements, and then having this space to test out different things to take us into the future. So I'm curious about your experience going from West Virginia. You lived there your entire life and worked there and went to school there. And now you're running a national organization. What's that experience like? Big change or... It's been easy because I think the part is where I came from, I have done connecting with national partners in other states and working in collaboration for decades. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've always looked at it from a standpoint of that when you build out partnerships that are identifying mutual beneficial states, communities, programs, organizations, that you can go further. You know, the old saying is that if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, take your time, but to to bring people along with you. The other part also is that I learned a lot when you're in a tight-knit community of how you can be divisive, you can be Mm -hmm. conflict-oriented, you can ignore the other options. And what that does is you cut your nose off to spite your face. And so I think in this role, it allows for me to, one, identify critical partners and resources that we can work together. Two, having been a state philanthropy-serving organization partner, There's always that yearning as to how can you work with national PSO leaders or national PSO organizations. And so bringing that perspective gives an added advantage to say like, okay, how does Exponent deliver in the new space that we're in, you know, at this stage of COVID and post-COVID is to be creative as how we work with folks. And then third is really meeting people in space to really build the, the relationships Yes, there's a there's an element of like, you know, having staff spread across the country that's a bit different, but then going back to the merits of values-based leadership and really centering in my lessons learned over time. A lot of the skills that I learned in my time uh, in multiple different roles across Appalachia, West Virginia, the country is taking time to meet people where they are will go mm-hmm. so much further. I'm hoping over my tenure here, I get a chance to visit with the majority of them. And then also knowing that we are a national network with local roots and reminding ourselves out of our offices, whether I'm working from my home here in Appalachia, southwest of Pittsburgh, or my colleagues in Montana, in state of Washington, or in the Maryland area or DMV, that we're all being reminded of how we are doing this work and being respective of the communities of our members that they serve. One of the challenges for us all during COVID and beyond is managing a remote workforce. And as you're coming in as a new CEO with an already established leadership team, if you will, what's your thought process there? How are you helping to build camaraderie from the remote uh, 
perspective as well as just being the new CEO. Yeah, I came into it from a perspective of, I, you know, I want to understand the culture and the practices in place and what the staff's already been through. So as I came in uh, at the beginning of July, our team had done some critical work in advance of just in the midst of the leadership transition or before my predecessor left, Henry Berman. And so they did an equity assessment, kind of reviewing what's going on. And so they had done some very important work to identify that we did not have consistent management leadership styles when it came to accountability and support and coaching. So uh, when I arrived, there were already a few sessions in, but we had been working with a consulting group called One Tilt, thanks to resources from Borealis Philanthropies, as well as from a number of other funders, to really help coach along both the managers and the people about what culture are we creating going forward. So I want to be respectful of my colleague, Afia, who is our Director of Equity Inclusion, had been doing that work with, with one tilt, but bringing the whole staff into that. When I came in, that allowed for me to know, like, okay, here's, here's where we're setting the expectations. And then also for me to engage as much of the content and the training and the coaching to say, okay, this is the new environment we're building out. And I think that was very helpful to me to come in to understand the current culture. Um, but also we're wanting to shape a new culture. During my first several months, I had face-to-face meetings with every team member, one-on-ones, for 90 minutes to get their input on what's needed, their thoughts, but also what their expectations and how they want to celebrate as well as set goals. So that also gives me the framework to know how to, to build that forward. As a incoming CEO of Exponent, YPTC has been working with Exponent for several years, but how did we help you get acclimated? It's been really beneficial to have someone I can pick up the phone and talk to, whether it's Christy or Horace or other members of the team to say, walk me through why we're doing it this way. Help me understand like historically what's going on there. You know, we're right now in the throes of prepping our kind of three-year budget projections. And so being able to have that clarity, but also knowing that we're centering best practices I think the other part, too, is one of the discussions is looking at where we need to do professional development of our staff to understand different accounting practices. Because I think just embedding accounting in, in one or two people doesn't provide clarity to the whole team. So I think that's the other one. So it gave Great. me the base knowledge to say, okay, why do we do certain things? Walk me through the processes. Are we in good compliance? Are we in good practices? Do we have separation of duties and good internal controls? Which all those questions were yes, 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 yes. Great questions. Yep. And then the other parts of it too is like, what are the ways could we improve and look at efficiencies? And so as we've gone along, um, being able to say like, yes, my colleagues who used to be here did great work, but like, let's modernize. And so that's the other part too, is thinking just smart. And then when there's a question, I call them up or we set our regular meeting time. I met with Christy this morning. It's our weekly meeting. And we walk through everything that is able to keep us in an element and I think the added bonus is when we bring on a senior director of operations, we're going to use the skills with the interview process that Horace mentioned is there's an accounting proficiency test that YPTC does for candidates. So I've already talked to Horace about when we get our final candidates, candidates for this position of senior director of operations people, we want them to go through the YPTC. You know, so it's a partnership to make sure we find the right talent on the interview process. So just it's a multidimensional resource partner. And then also it builds even increased confidence and trust between staff and partner, but also in the long term between staff, board, and then our investors that contribute to our work. And so I think the one part with all of your clients and partners is that 
one, the kudos to them for those that lead in this space. And then two is making sure our society recognizes the critical work as we come out of the past few years, but also the future, that our communities, if we pulled nonprofits and philanthropy out, would not be thriving spaces. You know, stuff would still exist. Agreed. And I think that's the part of knowing that this work is so critical to society. It's so critical to small towns, big cities, everything in between. But then thirdly is giving the respect and appreciation for those that are doing this work as critical professionals, not just a, it's nice that you're doing that, but whether business, as we look across professional spectrums in different sectors, each sector is key. I always talk about a table and for a table to be solid, you need at least four strong legs. And so that is business, government, nonprofits, and philanthropy. And if we realize that every community would have a strong sector of each area, we could really build up so that each community thrives and people thrive. So that's just the one thing I mentioned is appreciation for folks that do this work. As we go into the future, great deeper respect in, in uh, analyzing whether you're a policymaker, a business leader, a nonprofit, or a philanthropy leader, or a citizen. How do we work together to make our communities a much better collaborative space? Uh, and I just want to say I appreciate you and the work that you do throughout your career and the work you're doing at Exponent Philanthropy and appreciate the partnership that we have with Exponent and you um, through our work at YPTC. Um, so thanks, Paul. Jennifer, thank you and YPTC for this incredible invitation to share our work at Exponent and just wish you all the best. That was my conversation with Paul Dougherty, Chief Executive Officer of Exponent Philanthropy. Up next in our Ask the Controller segment, we hear from YPTC's own Geraldine Dressler and YPTC manager, Horace Campbell. Hello and welcome to Ask the Controller. I am your host, Geraldine Dressler, and I want to give a warm welcome to our guest today, Horace Campbell from our Washington, D.C. office. Horace, thanks so much for being here. Hi, Geraldine. It's my pleasure being here. Great. Let's jump right in. So how did you and the YPTC team help Paul, as the new CEO, get acclimated to the finances of Exponent Philanthropy? He had mentioned some efficiencies and modernizations, but what in particular were you and the team able to implement or change? Okay, well, first of all, as a new CEO coming in, it was important to the YPTC team that Paul gain a thorough understanding of the financial transaction, the processes in the organization. It was important for us to ensure him that he's not walking into a messy situation. So we spent some time with him and we ran through the different processes, AP, AR, cash. And in that conversation, we also touched on internal controls, financial compliance, as well as, you know, give him our assessment of the overall financial health of the organization. So I felt that it was important to set that context with him. But also having a new CEO coming in, we thought this was a great opportunity for us to take a look at, at our processes and see, are there ways that we could, we could leverage some automations and bring some efficiencies to the organization? So one thing that we really implemented fully was Bill, you know, formerly Bill.com. The organization had an account with, with Bill. However, they weren't utilizing it fully. We felt that Bill um, would be a great opportunity for them to to want to modernize their accounts payable process and, and leverage the automation that comes with that. Those recurring transactions every month can automatically be paid and be categorized. And then coupled with that, we, we also thought that it would be great to use the banking feature of QuickBooks 
to automate those recurrent entries as well. So, so that, that in itself saves on, on time spent, you know, coding these, these manual entries and ensuring that with Paul, he loved that. And then in talking with Paul, we immediately got a sense that he, he wanted to see some, some enhanced reporting as it relates to, to telling the story about the financial health of the organization. And so well, what we did was that we decided to enhance our financial package by reintroducing some of the data visualization in their financial package. One thing that was important to him was about cash flow and really understanding, you know, the inflows and outflows. So we thought it would be great to use the, the Sankey diagram method, incorporate that in our financial package, which I felt really added value and really made telling the story stronger. That's great. And I love hearing about all the automation that you implemented because time saved is definitely money saved too, right? Um, Absolutely. And you also mentioned uh, that Sankey chart, which um, we will definitely put a link to an example of that in our show notes because it's a really cool way to tell a story about different financial metrics. Paul had mentioned that Exponent Philanthropy is undergoing their annual budget process for the upcoming year as well as for the next three years. It's definitely a best practice that nonprofits should engage in, but it's hard to do and many just don't do it. So what elements do Paul and his team bring into the budgeting process for the three-year plan that's different from the annual process? Well, I, I must say that regarding the budget, this is the first time that, that YPTC has participated in Exponent's um, budget process. Historically, the budget was done in-house. However, it was also done on a cash basis. Now, we're on a monthly basis. Um, we're reporting on a cruel basis of accounting as well as the audited financial statements are reported on an accrual basis. So there was always a disconnect between the actual and the budget, and there wasn't really a clear way for us to monitor and measure variances because we're looking at it from a cash basis standpoint. So in, in discussing that with Paul, we realized that he was aligned with, with our com commitment to, to move to a, an accrual basis budget. So th that gave us an opportunity to really support them in that effort. I, and I see that as a great opportunity because They'll be able to monitor the, their progress and be able to, to really, um, based on the current trends, make changes to their strategies, as well as the, the, their forecasts and their projections um, throughout the year. But in, in terms of the three-year budget, you know, while you know, th this is still in its planning stage, I think where it will become becoming useful for, um, for the organization is that you know, um, being able to, to actually finally do an accrual basis annual budget that, that is aligned with the financials, um, you know, the, the organization is now be able to see certain gaps, um, you know, some deficiencies that they may need to, to address, you know, um, in the future, whether it's top line or, or, or bottom line. So having a three-year plan gives them the opportunity to really start putting strategies in, in place to mitigate these deficiencies so that way they can show progress over, over the next, um, you know, three or, three or more years. Well, that's great to hear. And it sounds like uh, the YPTC team and Paul have been working really well together from the jump. So it's great to see all of the new efficiencies and processes that will help benefit Exponent Philanthropy in the future. So that's all we have time for, Horace. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Mission Business Podcast. We look forward to bringing you more stories of innovation and perseverance from nonprofits around the world. I want to thank our team at PWP Video for their guidance and assistance in the development and production of this podcast. 
They are a great partner for Media with a Mission, and you can find them at pwpvideo.com. Additional information about this episode can be found at missionbusinesspod.com. And follow us on social media at Mission Business Pod on Instagram and Facebook and Mission Biz Pod on Twitter. Thank you to our guest, Paul Dougherty, Chief Executive Officer of Exponent Philanthropy, and our Ask the Controller guest, Horace Campbell, for their participation in this episode. This podcast was produced by Erica Blair and Geraldine Dressler of your Part-Time Controller, LLC. Dave Winston and Michael Schweizheimer are our producers from PWP Video, and the show was directed and edited by Pat Ganley. Again, I'm Jennifer Oliva, and we'll see you here next time on Mission Business Podcast, presented by your Part-Time Controller, LLC.